Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. The human zoo, where they don't hide away the sick animals. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The independent republic of Mike Graham. Stand to attention when I'm talking to you! On Talk Radio. Dismiss! Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. He's back to school for our MPs this morning as the business of government gets properly underway once again. We'll bring you the details of the first cabinet meeting of the year and we'll be asking why Boris Johnson has decided to hold back on his civil service reforms and why Sajid Javid wants to move Treasury Ministers and Mandarins further north. Apparently, it's going to keep everybody in much better check if they know where they're working is not actually in London. We're live streaming the show for the second time today uh, to Facebook, to Twitter uh, and, of course, to YouTube as well. So join the revolution and the conversation for the next three hours because we do see the comments that you give us. We do see uh, some of the suggestions that you give us and some of them may even be acted upon. You never know. But also, we still want to hear from you the old-fashioned way uh, on the telephone too. 03444991000. Meanwhile, the tension continues in the Middle East as the Ministry of Defence has dispatched an emergency evacuation team to Iraq to safeguard military and civilian personnel just in case it all kicks off. Iran is said to be mulling over exactly how to respond to the assassination of Qasem Soleimani last week and the US and UK forces are obviously on high alert. Uh, we'll be finding out what's going on there as well. 03444991000. Coming up later on, Simon Calder from The Independent will join us. He's going to be explaining why why Crossrail has been delayed yet again. This time, apparently, it's not going to be ready until autumn of 2021. How can it take so long to build a bleeding railway? Half of it's already there anyway, isn't it? They call the Heathrow Express Crossrail, for heaven's sake. Uh, also, we'll be telling you why happiness is the key to doing better in life. Now, as Julia Hartley Brewer just told you, you might think I'm quite a grumpy sort of character, but actually, no, I'm a very, very happy person, a very happy-go-lucky person. The fact that I get angry about certain things that annoy me actually makes me happy. And that's how I get along. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, and watching me right here on Talk Radio. It is the fastest growing radio station on the planet. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, as you cast your eyes across the front pages of the newspapers this morning, you might be forgiven for thinking uh, that there is no battle in the Middle East to be won, that there is no problem uh, in Westminster because everything is going terribly smoothly, uh, and you might not think that we are on the brink of World War III at all. I am one of those people who does not think that Iranian uh, and the Iranian regime is going to do anything terribly dramatic or terribly drastic. What I can tell you uh, is that on the news right now, 
We are seeing uh, that the uh, second day of the funeral uh, of Qasem Soleimani is taking place and there's already been some kind of a stampede. 48 people have been killed. Sorry, 35 people have been killed. 48 people have been injured in a stampede at the funeral, which is a terrible uh, state of affairs in and of itself. Uh, but before we get to that, before we talk about what's going on in Iran today and in Iraq as well, uh, we're going to talk to Anne Widdicombe, who is, of course, uh, an MEP over in Brussels for the Brexit party. Uh, not for much longer, it would seem, because we are leaving the European Union on January the 31st, come hell or high water. Uh, what I'm going to ask Anne, though, is what she thinks is going on in Westminster, and is it going to be great... Or is it going to be middling? Is it going to be awful? Anne, a very good morning to you. Welcome to Talk Well, Radio. good morning to you too. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Delightful to speak to you because we haven't really had a chance to talk to many members of the Brexit party since the election. And obviously you're uh, sort of working your last few weeks in the, uh, in the job as an, M as an MEP. Um, what are you making so far uh, of what's happened? I mean, were you as surprised as everybody else was with the majority that Boris Johnson got? No, not entirely surprised. And I mean, I think the Brexit Party can take uh, a, a lot of credit for it uh, because we drew off Labour votes uh, in areas where people wouldn't vote Conservatives, however fed up they were with the Labour Party. So we, uh, we if you like, we helped very considerably. Um, it was just a bit bigger than I thought. Yes, that's quite true. But I did expect a good majority for this reason. On doorstep after doorstep, people were saying to me um, they'd voted Labour all their lives, uh, but they couldn't stand the thought of what Corbyn was offering, which mm. was effectively Marxism. Yes, indeed. And, and the Labour Party still can't quite seem to work out that that's not a very winning um, combination, is it, really? They, 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 uh, it amazes me. They don't appear, if their leadership candidates are anything to go by, uh, even the moderate ones like Keir Starmer, they don't appear to have appreciated that the public's actually afraid of the hard left, afraid of them. Yes, absolutely right. And with good reason, by the way. I mean, I was seriously considering if they had got elected, actually leaving the country. I've worked in America before. Yeah. I think I would have gone and done it again. Well, you know, I was sorely tempted to say that, but uh, the fact is I like British hedgerows and British birdsong, and <laughs> I don't think I would uproot and go, not even if Corbyn were Prime Minister. No, although he might, of course, nationalise the hedgerows, and that would be the end of them, and they'd all we wither and die. Would, but you're probably not joking. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely right. Now, one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you this morning, Anne, was because Boris is sort of setting out his stall, I guess, this week for the first time properly since the election. Obviously, we'll be with, yeah. uh, discussing the withdrawal bill. He's already rowing back a little bit on some of the reforms he was promising from some of the government departments like international development and maybe defence as well. Um, is that a problem for you or do you think he's got plenty of time to do what he needs to do? Well, he's got time to do what he needs to do, but I mean, I, I do think he needs to set out his objectives. And I'd take one of the ones you've mentioned, which is uh, the Department of Overseas Aid. Yeah. Um, there's too much emphasis on the budget itself, saying either we spend too much or whatever. But I ask this very fundamental question. The West has contributed trillions, and I do mean trillions, over several decades uh, to developing countries. How come, therefore, that vast tracts of the third world still don't have access to a pure water supply? Yeah. And its objectives, its priorities, which I think need thoroughly sorting out, instead of being driven by the amount of money we're spending, we should be driven by what we want to achieve. Well, quite. And we're told quite often, particularly with India, uh, that one of the reasons we give money away is because it helps further trade negotiations and it helps further trade deals. But there's clearly no evidence of that in many of these countries that we give money to. Well, uh, uh, in a, apart from the fact there's no evidence of it, you're quite right there. 
Um, is that what overseas aid is about? Yeah. Is it about improving our trade relationships or is it about uh, actually improving the lives of people trapped in developing countries? Well, exactly right. And so perhaps because he's got such a large majority and he can choose yeah. uh, and pick whichever things he wants to attack and the, because the uh, um, the opposition is so weak, I mean, is that a danger for, for the rest of us? Because if Boris suddenly decides he doesn't want to do something, he's not going to be able to be pressured into doing it. No, it's both a danger and an opportunity. If you think back to the Thatcher years, um, having a huge majority made the government very, very bold. Mm. What we tend to forget is that Thatcher faced quite regular rebellions from her backbenchers over things she was doing, the NHS reforms, the education reforms. It didn't matter because she had a big enough majority, she could ride down any rebellion. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, she was able to go very boldly uh, into quite a radical programme. Now, it's up to Boris whether he takes that same opportunity, but, of course, it won't last forever. No, because it, it, it never won't. Does. It won't, it never does. I mean, Tony Blair had the same um, sort of ability yes. to get things yes. through because he didn't have to worry about the dissenters. There wasn't enough of them to stop him from doing anything. Do you see the new Tory, the parliamentary party now, of the Tories uh, much more in his image than it was? I think when I look at Parliament as a whole... Um, I worry about the quality of MP, quite honestly, um, and particularly now that we've got a whole raft of new MPs, mm. some of whom didn't, and quite reasonably, didn't expect to be there. Uh, I, I do worry about the quality of MP. I think that running a country, it, it, you know, you mustn't be concerned with quotas. You mustn't worry about how many women, how many ethnics, how many gays, how many young people, whatever it might be you've got there. You've got to worry about one thing mm. only which is merit. Yes. Although, merit. of course, we hear all the time, don't we? We hear all the time, that, don't we, that we, what we don't want are too many kind of apparatchiks, too yep. many people who have come up through the ranks of researchers. And that's also true. Um, yep. What we want is people from the real world. And it seems as though some of the younger MPs who, who are part of this intake have come from the real world. Uh, some of them have. Um, yeah. In every parliamentary intake, you've got people who uh, come from a broad range of, 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 of lifestyles and jobs and experience and all the rest of it. Um, but what you're actually looking at is, if you like, the quality of the average. We've always had, and we'll always have, some brilliant members of Parliament, and we've always had, and we'll always have, some utterly useless members of Parliament. <laughs> I'm afraid so. Between. Yes, it's, it's I was quite surprised, actually. I was quite surprised, actually, how many of the useless ones got re-elected, sadly. I'm afraid that's party, isn't yes. it? That's the party system. Yes, you it know, is the indeed. The thing that if you put up a monkey with a particular coloured rosette, it gets elected. <laughs> it does indeed, yeah. Now, what about Brussels? Because obviously you, you'll have seen a bit of a sea change there as well since the election yes. result, because we've already, from this side of the pond, uh, or this side of the channel, I should say, seen a, a much more kind of um, quiet um, approach from the EU, a much more kind of conciliatory approach, a much less aggressive approach, I guess I would say. Oh, I don't know that they're being so conciliatory. I mean, Ursula von der Leyen is already saying, you know, well, it, it, it's too ambitious to expect us to have completed everything by the end of the year, which is, of course, Boris's deadline. Yes. Um, and I think, therefore, Boris should respond very robustly and should say, well, tough, because if we don't complete it, we're going on WTO terms. Well, we've already, have we not already put that into law as part of the new withdrawal agreement? Well, we will be putting it into law that if we haven't got a deal by December 31st, we leave without one. 
Oh, yes. But I mean, the fact is that if both sides decided that they needed a bit more time, um, then reality says that is what would happen. And, and that is what must not happen. Mm. Uh, and Boris has now got the majority to carry that forward. So um, the Brexit party will be very, very focused on those trade negotiations. Once we've actually left on the 31st, we'll be very focused on what's happening because, crucially, the EU does not want a competitor on its borders. No. And we have to be that competitor if we're to get the most out of being out of the EU. So what's the actual plan of action for MEPs such as yourself, Anne? How does, yep. that, how does that actually play out over the next month or so? Well, we cease to be MEPs on the 31st of January, and I cannot say I'm sorry, right. honestly. <laughs> it was not a foray back into politics that I particularly wanted. Um, but uh, I, So we will cease to be MEPs, but the Brexit party as such will continue to watch what happens with the trade negotiations with the European Defence Union, uh, with money that's left in there from the European Investment Bank. We'll be watching all these things and just drawing public attention to what is going on. I don't want uh, Boris to feel uh, that just because he's got a big majority, nobody is going to hold him to account for what he's doing. No, I mean, Jeremy Corbyn claims he's going to hold him to account, but I don't know why he's <laughs> going to bother. Um, and, of course, Ed, uh, um, uh, Ed Davey from the Liberal Dems says that he wants to have an investigation into Brexit. So, I mean, these guys haven't even moved on yet. Yeah, I know. And, I mean, when you heard the pronouncement from Jess Phillips, now she has now U-turned, saying that, you know, she would argue to rejoin the EU, you begin to wonder if any of them actually know what democracy means. <laughs> no, indeed. And what about the Brexit Party um, councillors up and down the country? Because there's quite a few of them. What happens to them? Uh, well, as I say, the Brexit Party will have a role and it will continue with that. Um, we don't have that much of a, of a role in local councils, quite honestly. We've never sought that sort of role. Mm. Uh, UKIP did, but uh, uh, we haven't. Um, and uh, I, I don't think that, uh, unless things go very, very wrong... Uh, and we need a resurgent Brexit party, uh, I don't think that'll be our main aim. Our main aim will be to make sure that everybody understands what's going on with the negotiations. That'll be our main aim. And what about the uh, news today that Sajid Javid wants to move a few ministers and possibly a few sort of uh, civil service mandarins out of London up to the north of England? Is, is, the, is the north of England suddenly becoming the discoverable part of Britain everybody forgot about? Well, everybody did forget about it, and indeed it was the Brexit party which led the way in the general election by saying early on we would cancel HS2 and we would put the money uh, into northern regeneration. Um, however, you want to be very careful about gesture politics. It's one thing to, to concentrate on regenerating the north. It's quite another just to say, well, we'll send a few civil servants up there and, you know, they can get experience of living there. And it doesn't actually work if the heart of government is in London where mm. you need your senior civil servants. It doesn't well, work. Well, no, exactly. And, and what do you think um, Boris Johnson has to do for those voters in the north of England? Because I've spoken to a few of them since the election who have said, you know, that, that they, they agree that they have loaned their vote to the Conservative yeah. Party, uh, but they must earn that vote if they want to keep it. Yeah, I mean, Boris has got a golden opportunity because if he can keep those votes, then he's brought about a huge sea change in, in British politics. Uh, so uh, it's very, very important. Uh, and what he has to do is produce results. No good talking. Mm. No good talking. You need actually to see some quite serious northern regeneration. Uh, having said that, you also have to be totally realistic about what you can and can't do. Uh, and you have to focus on what you can do. And as far as the money being spent is concerned, he was all about spending loads and loads of money in the election campaign, as were the Labour Party. Um, is that sustainable? 
Well, it, that's an extremely good question because it really did become a, a spending competition. It did, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and, and which is always irresponsible, usually unaffordable. Uh, a great deal will depend what happens to the economy, how many of those promises he can keep. Personally, I don't think he should have made some of them. Um, I also think he's now got a golden opportunity, if I can just sidetrack a little bit, mm. with the NHS. Yes. Because <coughs> the NHS, doesn't matter how much money you pour into it, it can never actually keep up with the level of demand that is now being made. And I think we do need to ask ourselves a big question. We need to say, if we were starting again knowing what we now know, what would we have designed? And then a major public cross-party interdisciplinary debate on what we could do. Uh, and I think that is so important because governments just vow to outspend each other. None of them are tackling the essential problem is which is that you had a service that was set up by the founding fathers of the NHS on the assumption that demand would decline as yeah. we all got healthier. And, of course, demand has been driven towards infinity by medical and surgical science. Of course. And also the massive elephant in the room now in any conversation about health is social care and what you're going yeah. to do with your elderly parents when they need to be looked after by somebody else. And nobody is addressing that right now. No, nobody is addressing that. And also, of course, they're not addressing the other aspect of that is that it's one thing to say, what on earth can you do when you can no longer cope? Um, but a, a completely different thing to assume that the state has the first responsibility. Yeah. Uh, and of course, I mean, my generation, we dealt with this within families. There are other parts of the globe that deal with this largely within families. And the state does have a huge role but only as a last resort, not as a first resort. Yes. Uh, and I, that is one of the things we've got to look at. But I'm afraid we now live in a world, Anne, where uh, people expect certain things and they can't actually believe that they could have a life without those things, you know. I know. I mean, I, I grew up in the 70s when, you know, we had the three-day week when and I know people go on and on about, oh, why are you always going on about the past? But, you know, we really didn't have very much and didn't need very much. And, you know, my, my own children now, you know, are horrified at the idea that they might have to be without you know, some kind of electronic device for more yeah, than about 10 minutes. Something. Yeah, yeah, never mind, yeah. you know, for, for the entire day and night because yeah. there's no electricity to fire it up. I mean, you're absolutely right. Um, I mean, I, I grew up in the 50s. Uh, I'm not doing a one-upmanship. <laughs> That's all right, I'm not going to argue with you. <laughs> but I grew up in the 50s when, of course, we were in post-war austerity. Yeah, uh, proper and austerity. The, you know, sweet rationing came off when I was five. Right. And I can remember that quite vividly. Uh, so it was different again, and the, and the assumption then was that you handed on your clothes, you know, and that you mended yep. and y you made do. Uh, and we used to play games out of our imagination. Sure. Yeah, no, I remember uh, all that. But this is the thing, and I mean, I don't suppose we can go back to that, and, and maybe can't. we can't. shouldn't want to go back to it, but I think we certainly are an incredibly spoiled nation now. Um, materialistic. Materialistic, but also from top to bottom in terms of expecting what the state does for you, and in terms of expecting the state to get you out of a hole. You know, I've gone into bankruptcy, the state must help me. You know, I've broken the law, the state must help me become a better person. You know, I'm sick and I'm, you know, my, my elderly parents are not well, the state must help me. You know, that we seem to have lost the kind of idea of individualism. Yes, I think that's true. We've lost self-reliance. Yeah. <clears throat> not everybody, it's not universal. But there is a general loss of, of, of the notion of self-reliance, of the fact that, you know, you are your first and most important helper. Um, we tend to have lost sight of that. And a very good illustration of that is the huge burden that is put on the NHS mm. uh, by self-inflicted problems. Indeed. Uh, drink, smoking, serious Drugs. obesity, these things. Yes. Um, 
you know, are all within our own control. Yes, absolutely. Well, I wish you'd come back and, and form some kind of party here, Anne, you know, because I think your voice <laughs> is very much needed still in the political landscape. So, so at least if you do give it all up in Brussels, will you come back and do something here? Well, I'm looking at, do you mean on talk radio? Well, well, on talk radio if you must, uh, or indeed and out there for the greater good. I mean, we just talk here, you know, we don't actually do anything. Yeah. <laughs> well, that is quite true, and uh, I'm at that age now where I'm afraid I talk rather a lot, yeah. Yeah, well, there's nothing wrong with talking. Talking is, <laughs> is the food of, uh, of life, after all. Yeah. And thanks very much indeed. Anne Whittacombe, uh, MEP for the Brexit Party. Not for much longer, of course, until January the 31st, but a woman that talks a great deal of sense and a woman uh, that I would love to see in the political landscape of this country uh, once she decides to give it all up uh, over in foreign fields. But I'd love to hear from you as well, because we do seem to have found ourselves now in this world where we rely on the state for almost everything. We can't actually figure anything out for ourselves. We can't work out anything for ourselves. This is not the show that I was planning to do. But I think we should do this show. Let's talk about why we can't do anything anymore and why we have to get help to do everything from, you know, basically having a child to raising that child to looking after your parents to looking after your sick relatives to looking after yourself. Why do you need the state to have such a big role in all of that? 0344 499 1000. We are live streaming the show as well. So if you've uh, enjoyed listening to me, you can now watch me on YouTube. You can watch me on Facebook. You can watch me on Twitter. We're going to be doing this from this point on. And guess what we're also doing at the end of this show this afternoon? We are filming the first in a new TV show called Plank of the Week. I can't wait for that. This is Talk Radio. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, quite a few of you have been talking about uh, all of the things that have been going on on the show this morning. Uh, talk, people still talking as well about the business of the fires in Australia. Uh, we've got Danny who says 183 people have been arrested in Australia for lighting fires. Rumours that they could be green activists, but still three quarters of the fires that have been lit have been lit deliberately. It's got nothing to do with climate change. This is a row that's been going on on social media really ever since the start uh, of the fire season. I think what we can say uh, is that there is a fire season in Australia. There is a fire season for a reason because every year, the same time, there is a, a, a series of bushfires. But however, what you can say is that this year they are much worse than they have ever been. And there are those who will tell you that part of the reason for that is that the air and the wind is an awful lot hotter and an awful lot faster than it normally is. Now, whether that has to do with climate change or not, I have no idea. Certainly people like Caroline Lucas from the Green Party will tell you that it's all to do with climate change. But the problem with Caroline Lucas is that she's still talking about how disappointing it is that we are leaving the European Union. This is a woman uh, who's the only Green Party elected MP. She represents Brighton. She talks about the fact that we shouldn't be leaving the European Union. She's put out a tweet within the last 10 hours or so, moaning and groaning that the Brexit, which is being sought by Boris Johnson, is only going to suit Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party and the MPs are not going to have a say. Well, I'm sorry, Caroline, and I know that we have spoken before uh, in various different incarnations, sometimes in the tent of common sense, sometimes not. But the bottom line is, is that people like Caroline Lucas have spent the best part of the last three years trying to stop Brexit from actually happening, holding up their hands and going, no, you can't have that. Never mind the fact that you voted for it. Never mind the fact that you wanted it. You can't actually have it. And so I think the fact that she's now complaining that she's not being given in any way, shape or form the uh, sort of the possibility of being able to put her mark on the Brexit withdrawal agreement and take part in the negotiations with the European Union. Well, I'm sorry, I don't think it should work that way. And I think most people who voted to leave the European Union would agree with me. Wouldn't we? 0344 499 1000 is the number. We're going to take loads of your calls coming up because we've got lots more to do between now and one o'clock, of course, when Matthew Wright is here. Let us first of all, though, kick things off with Simon Calder, travel editor of The Independent, travel guru uh, to talk radio and to the Independent Republic, of course, as well. So much to talk about, Simon. A very good morning to you. Uh, welcome, uh, back good to, morning. welcome back to the show. I want to kick off, first of all. We talked yesterday uh, to Lord Berkeley about the shambles of the HS2 scenario. He's the guy who... Uh, was part of the review process but basically quit when he discovered that uh, it was going to cost so much money and it was never going to be ready. We're now hearing the same thing about Crossrail. They've delayed it again until autumn of 2021. Uh, it's uh, an absolute scandal. Um, and to their credit, MPs have been looking into it and are absolutely aghast at the way that money and time has been squandered on this project. Um, let me just remind you what it is that they're trying to do, which is really to drag um, the uh, capital of the UK into the 21st century. Mm. So we're not re relying anymore on a kind of uh, literally Victorian um, underground railway network. Mm. Um, it's going to connect Reading and Heathrow Airport, which are west of the capital, with Shenfield in Essex, Abbeywood in southeast London. Trains every two and a half minutes through a central core. Um, that's going to make things much easier if you're travelling, for example, from... Yeah, from until, one of, them, until one of them breaks down, Simon. Well, of course, yes. <laughs> but, but the, the general plan, Mike, is that it's going to increase rail capacity by 10%. Um, it will mean that other journeys, for instance, particularly on the central line of the London Underground, are much easier. And it's going to be absolutely transformative. However, it is unbelievable that in 
July 2018, so we're talking 18 months ago, yes. they were still saying it's going to be open in December 2018, five months after that. In fact, it's now looking like it's going to be three years yes. late. Um, and they must have known when they said that that it wasn't true, surely. Well, um, the, the, uh, I, I have been digging around trying to find out exactly who knew what when because um, to, to go from it's opening in five months to it's opening in over three years is a bit of a jump. Um, uh, and, and they're blaming uh, the... the, the um, uh, they're blaming the, the scale and complexity of bringing together all the infrastructure and systems required for the railway to begin operation. Oh, yeah. Well, hang on. You, when you started it, before you'd even dug up a, a single uh, centimetre of the, the line, you knew that it was going to be a complex task. And um, why didn't you plan for it? So we were seeing something which was about £15 billion. They're now saying, oh, it's going to be over £18 billion. But actually, it's worse than that because you also need to take into account all the lost income from the line, which is going to increase it to £20 billion. And uh, so just um, to put that in perspective, that's about sort of 300 quid for every um, man, woman and child in the UK. Um, yes, that's quite a lot of money. And I'd, I'd have yeah. to say, without wishing to be too cynical here, Simon, that oh, I have I, I absolutely did. no faith in their new deadline of autumn 2021 because every other deadline hasn't been hit. Why on earth would, it, would we expect them to hit this one? Well, yesterday you had Mike Brown, the um, uh, who's the sort of boss of Transport for London, who is most definitely, along with everyone else, saying, "Oh, uh, yeah, well, it's nothing to do with us. Obviously, it's Crossrail Limited, which is um, <laughs> a, a subsidiary of Transport for London." But he said um, the assumption we've made is at the pessimistic end, but it's at the pragmatic end. Um, so I think it probably will be open. If you want, by the way to travel on any of the trains on what's going to be called the Elizabeth Line. Yes. You can do that from London, Paddington, out towards um, uh, Hayes and Harlington, uh, and in the opposite direction from uh, Liverpool Street is, out towards Shenfield. Is this the, the trouble is they don't do the key bit of running under the city centre. No. So you can actually have a go on some of these nice and shiny new trains then, can you? Because oh, I was, oh, yeah. I I was told uh, by, by, by one of your four, uh, colleagues who's in the railway business, that, you know, they now regard the Heathrow Express as part of Crossrail. Ah, which right. Which apparently means that they can say it's already up and running. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure that they can do that, and I'm not sure that they are doing that. And indeed, <laughs> cross, uh, Heathrow Express, again, just to remind people who are uh, not necessarily familiar with this, is that, uh, the UK's most expensive railway line. It runs... In 15 minutes from central London out to the central area of Heathrow, five more minutes to uh, Terminal 5. And, gosh, last time I was there, I think I paid about 25 quid. Yeah, I know. Um, Although producer Marta here at Talk Radio told me that if you book in advance, you can get it for a tenner. Oh, oh, sure, yeah, if, if you're booking a bus, but I'm probably like lots of people I use it as a, an insurance policy for yes. when things are going um, slightly wrong and I need to get out to Heathrow <laughs> yeah. in a hurry. Well, exactly so, so right. I, uh, but, but no, your, your producer master is, is, is quite right. But after, um, when, when um, eventually Crossrail starts uh, running, um, it's going to be very, very difficult for Heathrow Express because you'll be able to get very easily, not just from Heathrow to London Paddington on the um, uh, on Crossrail, you'll also be able to get into uh, to Bond Street, Tottenham Court Road, 
um, all the way across uh, Liverpool Street, Canary Wharf. It's going to be terrific. That will be sure great, actually. Is... That will be great. I mean, for once, well, I can actually be in total agreement with you, Simon, and say that that actually does sound like a good idea because my next question was going to be who on earth is going to use this? But if it's coming from Heathrow... Um, and you can get into central London. That will be massively uh, a boost to uh, to tourists. Oh, oh, sure, yeah. And and the the other thing is that for an awful lot of people who come in from either the west or the east of London, at the moment they get they have to change trains either at Paddington or at uh, uh, Liverpool Street. It's the fast, it's crowded, it's congested. Yeah. You've got twice the chance of things going wrong. Um, and and that is going to be uh, a really interesting. Um, uh, improvement to many people's commuting lives. It will also make life easier for visitors to the capital. So, in general, it's a great thing. It just has been the most appallingly botched project. And to go back to your original mention of um, uh, Lord Barclay and HS2, um, I personally think that HS2 is an absolutely essential part of um, uh, uh, this kind of mid 20 I know you do. You're one of those um, people who uh, thinks that it's worth spending all this money on, even though it's never going to be of any use to man or beast. Oh, well, I, th I, th I think um, it will prove to be a success. However, of course, given the complete mess that Crossrail have made, made of uh, finishing their project, it's not unreasonable for people to think, well, you know, I'm going to see what they told us in terms of the budget and time and add 50% to those because obviously that's what yeah. you need to do. And if you think that in your or my lifetime this uh, HS2 thing is going to be up and running, I think I'm afraid that we are going to be sorely disappointed. And, and oh, Mike, I th I'd heard that, that you were going to be presenting for, for Talk Radio on first train, which <laughs> should be in nine, nine years from now. Well, I, th I was going to see you at the platform. I don't know who you've been talking to, but uh, I would pretty much bet my entire life salary on uh, that not happening. But there we are. Oh, okay. You know, but, but anyway, let's let's right. talk about some of the producer Martha. <laughs> <laughs> right. She'll definitely be here. Don't worry. Now, yeah. what about uh, the weather? Because I'm told that uh, you've got oh. some information for people travelling, particularly oh. to northern parts of this great island of ours. Uh, yes, it, it's all gone a bit wrong. Um, if you're all right, so so well, where to start? The roads, for instance, the, the the premier road link in the UK, which is probably the A1 from London to Edinburgh, mm. uh, that is closed uh, east of the uh, Scottish capital because of high winds. Oh um, uh, uh, yeah, and they're expecting um, really serious. Uh, conditions for the ferries in the Western Isles. Blimey. So most of those have been cancelled. Um, here we are. Aaron, Barra, Cole, Harris, Lewis, North Uist, Rafe, Sky and Tyree are all cancelled. Um, uh, the uh, link to Iona is suspended. They're going to make a decision on that in about an hour. Um, ferries to and from Orkney and Shetland, they are jeopardised as well. You know the... the um, airport where you land on the beach of Barra. Yes. Well, the flight this morning there and back has been cancelled. Mm. And um, it's all, all looking like, uh, quite serious. Um, and is that affecting like Edinburgh or Glasgow airports as well? Uh, well, not so far, uh, quite surprisingly, given that you've got these very high winds coming in from the southwest. It may be that actually the, the, the uh, alignment of the runway, I think, at both those airports is sort of designed for high winds coming in yeah. from the southwest, so that's not too bad. But don't take any high-sided vehicles over the sky bridge, Mike.
No, I certainly wouldn't want to do that, but it's a beautiful yeah. part of the world, and all of those places that you can't now get to are tremendous <laughs> and well worth visiting once the wind's died down a bit. But uh, yeah. the other thing we should mention as well, Simon, because you are the uh, the, the all-knowing person on this front, uh, is a, apparently a bit of trouble getting in and out, not surprisingly, uh, on planes to the Middle East. Well, look, um, I have talked to the main airlines that are flying to and from the uh, Middle East, and that's uh, British Airways, um, uh, Etihad of Abu Dhabi, Qatar Airways, and, of course, Emirates of Dubai. They all say things are going completely normally. Um, we have had a, an odd, odd thing which happened on Friday, uh, sorry, on, on, on Saturday, which was um, the TUI flight from Gatwick to Goa in India was cancelled uh -huh. um, because they said we're um, concerned about the flight path. Oh, really? Uh, it finally flew out yesterday and took an interesting uh, course. It, it went uh, well south of the actual Gulf and um, uh, took a bit longer than normal. But the one coming back appears to be going absolutely normal way, right. which is effectively up to Oman and then straight along the Gulf um, over a bit of Iraq or Iran and then um, uh, Bob's your uncle yeah. back in beautiful I mean, Funnily enough, and not to sound like uh, this is a rather, rather daft question, but I mean, if there is drone activity, as there was on Friday... Um, I'm assuming that that's all top secret and nobody knows about it. Commercial flight paths are not affected, I assume. However, um, I mean, if there was a lot of it going on, if, for example, militarily uh, things sort of heated up a little bit and there was more drone activity, does that in, in, in sort of impact on, on commercial flights at all? Well, it certainly uh, alarms uh, pilots and, and passengers. Yeah. If there is a lot of activity. Um, and, and obviously with a, uh, an operation like this, the Americans aren't likely to say, oh, yeah, by the way, yeah. we're going to be um, sending over a drone um, at half past two to... No, back. quite. But imagine yeah. if you're in one of these, you know, um, Airbus uh, 800s or whatever they are, coming yeah. over Iran and Iraq, and you suddenly spot a drone, you know, uh, Yes, that, that, that would be uh, very, very disconcerting. And, of course, it's impossible to kind of talk about these things without remembering um, MH17, of the... Uh, Aircraft uh, shot down with the loss of 298 lives um, over rebel-held um, eastern Ukraine. Mm. Um, and uh, there is understandable concern among passengers and, and crew uh, that they they are at, at risk if they fly over these areas. However, um, pragmatism tends to prevail to go to so many parts of the world. You know, there is a long-established flight path you go from uh, Britain over over kind of Belgium, Germany, uh, Austria, Czech yeah. Republic, all the way down to um, uh, to Turkey, over Turkey, and then somehow, sometimes over Iraq, sometimes over Iran, down to the Gulf, and then um, out over the Indian Ocean. Um, it's it, it's very long established, and you can go onto any of the uh, uh, flight watching sites and um, and see what's yeah. uh, what's happening out there. Plenty of aviation. Um, and so I would happily fly there, but I do understand people's um, uh, people's concerns. People's concerns at the moment, absolutely. Simon, thank you very much indeed. Simon, whenever I talk to you, I always end the conversation thinking to myself, I really should go on a plane somewhere. You always encourage people to travel, which is great. Simon called a travel editor of The Independent telling us about uh, the problems with Crossrail. It's not going to be ready uh, till 2021, at the very least, in the autumn, right? I would say push that to 2022. Uh, although it does sound actually like it will be much more useful use 
and much better uh, used than HS2 will be. Uh, we spoke about this yesterday with Lord Berkeley. I have no way of, of, of justifying the expenditure on HS2. Crossrail, at least, will be uh, actually used by an awful lot of people. But, of course, if you're outside of London, you might feel differently. 0344 499 1000. Don't forget, we are live-streaming this show. Uh, you can watch it on YouTube, you can watch it on Facebook, you can watch it on Twitter as well. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, I should imagine that you, like me, have been aghast at the way that uh, various members of the Labour Party have been throwing their various hats into the ring uh, of leadership. The numbers have been boosted uh, by the likes of Lisa Nandy, Rebecca Long-Bailey's name's in there. Uh, we've, got, of course, got Sir Keir Starmer, who'd like to lead the Labour Party. We've got uh, all sorts of other people, like Richard Bergen, who said he'd quite like to be deputy leader. Angela Rayner says she'd quite like to be deputy leader. There's a couple of other people uh, whose names I can't remember. Let's talk to Quentin Letts to see whether uh, he thinks that there is any point to any of this, because, of course, the problem for the Labour Party is that they really have become completely irrelevant at a stroke. Quentin, a very good afternoon to you. <laughs> good morning. Oh, good afternoon, Mike. Um, uh, it might be easier, Monday if they just said who wasn't going to be running as well, exactly. leader or as leader. Then, uh, then we could sort of vote for those ones. Um, by the way, congratulations on being on telly all the time, you poor thing. Yes, I know. Yeah. Isn't it dreadful? I now have to. I now have to dress up. I've already. I've already put in my request for a wardrobe allowance. I mean, I'm like you, Quentin. I come from. I come from the mucky world of print journalism, where you know you had to wear a suit when you were a reporter, but once you reached the high echelons of, of the likes of your parliamentary sketch writing and 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 sort of theatre reviewing, you didn't have to look quite so posh all the time. It's a nightmare for your listeners. It really anyway. is. Well, all I can tell you is the best advice I've had so far from one of them yesterday was why don't you just ditch the suit, put on a pair of running shorts and a T-shirt and do the show on a treadmill where you could actually lose weight at the same time. Oh, that's a terrible thought. Isn't anyway, it? Anyway, yes, uh, here we are talking about important matters because they are now back. They're coming back today, uh, the House of Commons. Yeah. And um, the Labour leadership contest is really getting going today. So I'm afraid that's the end of the holiday season because the loonies are back at the asylum. <laughs> and, and the dreadful <laughs> news about the Labour Party leadership contest, though, is it's going to go on forever. It's going on. Corbyn's going to be there until April. Right. So we haven't seen the last of him yet. Uh, we've got to go through all of Lent before we get rid of him. Mm. And, and he, he um, seems to be getting more and more grumpy by the day as well. All I see him doing now is slamming doors in front of people and behind people. Actually, I can't really blame him. I mean, poor old soul. You know, he's lost the election. <laughs> and uh, he's still going to go through the uh, through the motions. But I suppose he's doing that because he wants to retain an influence over the uh, the coming leadership election. Yes. And although, although, as you said in your introduction, it doesn't seem terribly important at the moment, this is quite important for our part, for our country, because uh, an opposition has always got the potential to become the government and an opposition can form government policy or can influence it yes. by opposing it uh, in, a, in, a, um, in a successful way. So, you know, these things do matter, even though at the moment with the post-election uh, honeymoon that Boris seems to be having is, uh, is one thing. And then there's also all the, the foreign affairs going on with the Iranian. Sure. So it doesn't seem at the moment to be at the top of the agenda, but I think it is quite important. Oh, of course. But the difficult part for me, and, 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 you, and you've got a five-point plan, which we'll come to in a moment, is that, is that all of the various different factions of the Labour Party have not still quite come to an agreement about where they want to go next, because we've got the sort of Keir Starmer crowd who basically say, we got it wrong on Brexit. Well, he was the guy that ma managed to actually get it wrong because it was his policy that put them on the fence in the first place. We've got Rebecca Long-Bailey saying that she wants to carry on with the Corbyn um, sort of um, manifesto 
Manchester, if you like. We've got Emily Thornbury, who doesn't seem to be quite sure where she is and whether she wants to get back into the European Union. We've got Je uh, Jess Phillips, who wants to get back into the EU. I mean, it's sort of all over the place, isn't it? Yes, there's a bit of uh, blame avoidance going on here. I think the one thing that they agree on is that they want to win the next election. And so they're trying to work out how best to do that. Mm. And the blame avoidance perhaps is uh, understandable on a human level, but I'm not sure that they're all being entirely honest because I think you don't really have to be Inspector Clouseau to work out <laughs> that the two things that went wrong were Corbyn and Brexit for yes. them. And uh, it was both those things. It wasn't either or, both those things. So uh, Corbyn is going to be going, but will Corbynism go with him? Uh, well, not if some of the candidates have their way. Certainly, uh, Clive Lewis wants to continue with Corbynism. You haven't mentioned him much. He's a, a little-known chap from um, from East Anglia. And then also... Well, that's because he's mostly he's mostly known for that dreadful phrase, which I cannot utter on the radio, uh, which he once said to a woman uh, on stage at some Labour event, which you might remember. Um, yeah, he's, he's a tough guy. That's the, only, tough that's the only thing I know about him, really. Uh, he's, I think, I don't think he stands much of a realistic uh, chance. No. I think, I think the Corbynites will be pushing their weight behind Rebecca Long Bailey, and also they'll be seeing that the deputy leadership um, is also uh, worth a push for them. So they'll be wanting to get the the old one-two, mm. as the old razor adverts used to put it. But um, I don't think Clive Lewis really needs to trouble the score as much. No, I don't think so. I'm also slightly puzzled by the reference that's always made to Angela Rayner, who appears to be or has been at some time or another, the flatmate of Rebecca Longbelly. I can't quite imagine that scene. Yeah, it's like you know isn't it? Uh, Walter Matter and Jack <laughs> Lemon uh, uh, could be recast as those two. Yeah, sitting uh, around sort of reading out book, bits from the book of Chairman Mao to each other or something. Actually, I don't think I don't think Angela Rayner's that um, that interested in books. Um, <laughs> I'm a bit surprised that she's not going for the leadership because she's a bag of tricks in some ways. She's very energetic, yes. and uh, she's got a quite a lot of life experience. Yeah, she's, she's got uh, a very high opinion of herself as well. Well, she's confrontational. Actually, I've seen her um, in, in operation away from the cameras, and I think she gets on with people quite well. Uh, certainly, her staff. I think she's quite good with her staff. Yeah. And she's um, blocked me on Twitter, so I can't really volunteer any information about her. I'm afraid. Well, that's a beastly thing to do. Isn't I it? Know. it doesn't come much lower than that. It is but, shocking. Um, uh, I would have, uh, you know, in another world, if, if she hadn't been contacted uh, in her 20s by the Labour Party, I think she could easily have become a Conservative. She's quite aspirational. Yes. Angela she wants to make the most of things and she's got very few airs and graces. She would have made a very good member of the Tory party, I think. But uh, <laughs> no, it didn't happen. She'll never forgive but, um, you for that. And what about this five-point plan of yours? Tell us about that because you've got some yeah, new I mean, pledges. Uh, I, was, uh, I was reminded of old uh, Ed Miliband's <laughs> tablet of stone, I must say, when I saw it. Well, the Marxists always have a 10-point plan. I'm not a Marxist. So I've gone for a five-point plan. <laughs> but I reckon that there are, certain, there are five things. That, yeah, that if one of the Labour would-be leaders um, signed up to these things, I think they could become electable. The first mm. one is saying that savings are a good idea. Right. So, you know, so this is true of government and of um, individuals, but don't spend more than you've got. Right. Second one is patriotism is honourable. So, you know, stop being so beastly about Britain. If you yeah. want to be leader of Britain, you know, say you actually like the place. Yes. The third one is uh, stand up for stable families. Say stable families are good for all of us. I'm not saying here that you need, you need to get married and you can't have uh, leg over occasionally, post uh, extramarital leg over, because politicians should never say that sort of thing. But of course Stable not. families, you know, create a country where stable families are appreciated. Yes. The next one is that Brexit has happened. Brexit is, is irreversible. Mm. So don't do a Jess Phillips and say we want them to rejoin the EU. That's not going to help the Labour Party. 
Okay. And the last one is say, let's have no more jobs worth. So this is basically political correctness, I suppose. Yes. Let's just have a system where the the jobs worth, those are the sort of people in officialdom who say, oh, it's more than my jobs worth. Yeah. I can't do that. Let's get rid of that sort of attitude and have the officialdom serving the public and stopping so absurd about political correctness and things yes. like transgender rights. Mm. I think it's just, you know, they've gone mad about things like that. And the Labour Party needs to just remind Britain that actually it's sensible. And well, it needs, I mean, it, your, your manifesto actually makes a lot of sense to the people, I'm sure, who used to vote Labour, but who didn't in this election because uh, they thought the Labour Party had sort of gone off the scale crazy yeah. and forgotten yeah. about its base, forgotten about the working class roots of people in the north of England, and forgotten that they're actually quite traditional, quite conservative with a small c, and don't like all this kind of madness going on around them. Yeah, and those are the people who need to vote Labour again if Labour are ever going to win a general election. Yeah. And those are the people who've gone over to Boris at the moment. Now, the Conservatives might struggle to keep those people. Um, you never know. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's going to be the battleground. And you won't get back those people unless you start sounding like a commonsensical, patriotic party that sort of uh, sympathises and actually likes the electorate. Yeah, and as you say, actually likes the country because there has been this kind of ill feeling going on between the very grumpy Jeremy Corbyn and, and his kind of front bench, which was always which was always scowling all the time, you know? You never I, seen... I think you're a little hard on Corbyn. I don't think he was quite so grumpy and scowly all the time he was leader. But, certainly perhaps, uh, but he, has, he literally has no sense of humour. He has no... He wow. I mean, you very rarely see him laughing, do you? He just because he... Has he blocked you on Twitter as well? Why are you so... No. Why are you so about him? No, I just don't like him very much. I just think he's an old misery guts, to be honest. Well, Mike, come, come find your New Year charity. I can't. Uh, charity. I've, got to, I've got to do a show this afternoon, which I want you to be a part of at some point. It's a weekly show. It's called Plank of the Week, uh, where you're going to nominate who is, who is going to get the Planks Award of the Week. People have said to me it's not very much in the sort of Christian spirit of the New Year. But the point is there's so many of them that we have to... We could do it every day. I answered a book listing 50 of them who'd, uh, who'd mucked up. <laughs> yes, uh, I remember that book. I do. <laughs> so how are you going to approach the new parliament then? Because presumably you're going to have to be really the official opposition uh, against Boris Johnson and, and, his, and his plans because the real opposition is so, in, in, so much in disarray that they can't do anything at the moment. Well, I don't know. We'll just wait and see what happens, won't we, Mike? See which, which um, galumpian idiots um, uh, perform <laughs> for us and, uh, and report it uh, without fear or favour. Yes, I mean, we've lost a few characters, haven't we? Like Kenneth Clark and Dominic Grieve and John, yeah, well, John, I'm, I'm, well, and John Burko going is probably not helping your career, is it? Well, I can take all. I can take Kenneth Clark's loss uh, in my stride. I thought he'd become a bit of a, a pompous old man. Uh, yeah. uh, but uh, Burko's departure is bad news for the sketch writing community because um, we we did thrive on on his beatiness yes. and his uh, his total intolerance, uh, even while he was claiming to be a, a modern man right. of, uh, of, of, of all sorts of uh, goodness. And um, so we, we we have to find new targets and we have mm. to find new characters. But you know, with a, a government which is led by uh, 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 Boris Johnson, I think we should be in business for very, a long time. Very well uh, sidestepped that description you were about to offer. I think you did very well there. <laughs> I was, and I remember the libel laws. <laughs> Quentin, thank you very much indeed. I should look forward to your first parliamentary sketch uh, of the year. Quentin Letts, Times columnist, of course. Got a great piece in the Sun today, the five-point plan to save Labour. I'm not sure anything can save Labour at the moment. Are you? 0344 499 1000. We are live streaming. Uh, I'm in a jacket and tie. You, of course, can watch us on YouTube, you can watch us on Facebook, and you can watch us as 
as well uh, on Twitter. As well as that, you can call us 0344 499 1000. We'll take your calls on Talk Radio. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.